It's 11 minutes now after 8 p.m. and Global Ratings Agency Moody's uh, says the contraction of South Africa's output in the first quarter is a credit negative for the uh, country's sovereign debt and uh, the country's banks. And last week, Status say announcing the economy shrunk by 3.2% in the first three months of the year, the biggest drop we've seen in a decade. And on top of this, new, the new administration uh, led by President Cyril Ramaphosa would have certainly had this front of center as uh, the uh, saw uh, a delegation of the newly launched department, uh, the Department of Employment and Labour, uh, alongside the trade unions, uh, heading to the uh, International Labour Organization's uh, uh, general meeting there, which is set to begin in the next few weeks or so. And, of course, uh, the, uh, there's another debate which has been doing the rounds that is certainly linked uh, to this uh, challenge of job creation, and that's about the independence and the mandate of the South African Reserve Bank, and uh, certainly a debate uh, that uh, has uh, uh, probably, uh, I guess, uh, had uh, uh, the two main factions inside the ANC squaring up against each other and uh, one side advocating for the expansion of that mandate and uh, the other, I guess, suggesting that the current model is already a factor in uh, uh, employment and growth into their articulation. And the big question then is, uh, is that enough? And moreover, uh, I certainly think a monetary policy alone is a blunt instrument to achieve these ends. But I've got two economists now on the line uh, who uh, certainly uh, probably know a bit more about these issues than I do. I'm joined on the line by economist and director at uh, Political Economy Southern Africa, and that's Siatuma Piniza, and uh, also by Anne Bernstein, executive director at the Center for Development and Enterprise. See ya. And Anne, and, and, uh, good evening to you, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. And let me start off with you. And uh, I well, mean, firstly, I'm not an economist, so. Uh, well, uh, I mean, you don't have to be trained as an economist, Anne. I think your work uh, probably neatly fits you in there. But uh, if economists are possessive about that title, I will certainly <laughs> leave it for now. Yeah. And I'd love to hear certainly uh, much of the work that you have done as the Center for Development and Enterprises, largely been around how do we get more South Africans into work, and uh, uh, you've certainly aimed much of your own arsenal at our policy framework and our policy mix in the country, and maybe that's a good place for us to start. Well, thank you. I think the, the scale of unemployment in South Africa is, is just so vast that it is our most challenging issue. And most people don't want to face up to the fact of how big it is. And so they propose small tweaking kinds of activities. They want to engage in projects small projects. They want to help people get into the queue for jobs. And some of this can be helpful. But the real issue is why is this economy not creating jobs for the labor force we actually have and not the highly skilled one we wish we had? So I can't stand going to events where people want to talk about how we must all prepare for the fourth industrial revolution when the vast majority of young South Africans in our schools can't read for meaning. So I think the country's stuck now. The economy's not growing. Unemployment is expanding. 237,000 jobs lost over the last quarter. Think about that. The people, the families, this is devastating. And we, we have to come to grips with this. We have to say, how are we going to create jobs? Which means we have to get more investment. We have to create more firms in order to create jobs, but for people who've never worked before, the vast majority of them. So I think we've got to think afresh. We've got to take some bold new steps, but to continue doing what the country's been doing up till now, 
will only lead to increased unemployment. Well, what, what is that? When you say if we carry on doing what we have been doing, uh, what have we been doing? Look, there are lots of things, and this is a very big challenge. I would say that for many people, the whole thrust of government policy over the last 20, 25 years has been we want a high-wage, high-skill economy. And that hasn't worked at all. And there are a number of assumptions built into that, but we don't have a high-skill economy. We also don't have a very competitive environment in which to invest. You're going to threaten property rights. Mm. If you're going to have millions of regulations, if you're going to have all sorts of things, why would anyone want to invest here? But Anne, I mean, many people would suggest that in the absence of those regulations, what you then have is a, a race to the bottom. Which, uh, of course, uh, I, I don't think uh, you know uh, South Africa, the political climate, uh, for instance, allows us to even have a debate around ultra-low wages, which is what we've seen in the East Asian experience. And so uh, it's probably not feasible for us to uh, even, pers- even pursue that when we look, I guess, at um, you know, the strength of uh, a labor organization in South Africa and the militancy thereof. Well, let me put it to you this way. I disagree with that. Mm. I think the big choice in South Africa today is this, if you're a policymaker. Is it better for people to have a job, even a low-paying job, or to be unemployed? And what we don't talk about nearly enough is the horror of unemployment and how awful this is for millions of people. And I don't know how else South Africa develops unless we go the route of a much more labor-intensive economy. Call it a much more Asian model. We've tried the other model, and it's failed us. So this isn't um, an academic discussion unless we take a decision Mm that says, we were wrong. You know, we tried it, but we were wrong. We have to take some bold choices that lead us in more, that attract factories that will employ people who've never worked before and who, through generally no fault of their own, have had a terrible education. Okay, and let's pause there slightly, Sia. Let me bring you in here, Mshobam. Do you share that sentiment that I guess uh, the uh, only way that is open to us out of this uh, job's quagmire that we find ourselves in is uh, the path of East Asia and uh, through, I guess, investment in industry that creates a low wage and uh, I would venture to even say low productivity work. Yeah, look, I think we're, we're dealing with quite a challenging uh, <laughs> topic today. Um, and I think, so I, I do share some of the sentiments, but not entirely. So my first point of departure is, um, you know, the preparing people for employment or trying to uh, f- fix the value chain of employment is not really going to solve the problem we have in South Africa. Um, the problem we have in South Africa is largely, obviously, um, due to the high unemployment, which creates low demand. The low demand then affects investment. So automatically, despite the returns that we're able to generate as an economy in our financial sector and elsewhere, uh, our investors or the capital, the owners of capital, aren't incentivized to invest in South Africa because the demand is so low. And so this is why they'll go invest in, in Nigeria or anywhere else on the continent. Um, and I think the only way we can resolve this is through a much more concerted effort in terms of policy on redistributing um, income and uh, really trying to uh, force in a way, the hand of capital to invest firstly in the real economy mm. in South Africa 
as opposed to uh, you know in the stock market and uh, the financial instruments which we have too much of already with the JSE that's capitalized three times of GDP um, by trying to find ways that incentivize. The challenge is that this terrain of policy is, uh, as you know, and said, uh, you start entering into the space of interfering with people's property rights, etc. And it's very difficult to really coordinate the hand of capital. And I think this is the challenge that the government is facing. If you look at all the policy options that we've tried, they're performing relatively well. If you think of the Employment Traction Center, for example, which is recently extended for mm. the next 10 years. This has grown from when it was implemented in 2013 to providing the incentive to about 100,000 new um, uh, graduate employees to where it is now over 600,000. But at the same time, the unemployment rate of youth in the band at which the policy is aimed at has increased from about 34% to 38% where it is currently. And so uh, the policy, I don't think that first the government is in the right position or the right uh, institution to create jobs, firstly. I mean, the role of government should be around how to uh, encourage, firstly, uh, the informal sector, uh, I think that's the inform- that's what will create a sort of low entry-level form of earning income for some people. Mm. And then beyond that is to find a way to redirect capital and redistribute uh, the wealth of the nation such that more or the money ends up in more people's hands, such mm. that it's more productive rather than, you know, only chasing profit or, okay. uh, you know, under the guise of uh, private property ownership as we are in now. See, uh, let's pause this slightly, and uh, Anne, and uh, we'll come back to some of these issues here around investment and, of course, the flexibility of our labor markets on the other side of this brief break. Twenty-three minutes it is now after eight p.m. I'm in conversation with Anne Bernstein from the Center for Development and Enterprise and Satu Mapineza from Political Economy in Southern Africa. And see, I just want us maybe to briefly continue on uh, uh, one issue that you were raising around investment and the relationship uh, between investment in the real sectors of the economy, uh, vis-à-vis, of course, in the financial services or be it in equities and the bond markets, uh, and uh, what impact that has had on uh, job creation. And uh, more importantly, I guess, what tools are at the disposal of uh, uh, management? teams in the uh, private sector and, of course, uh, the policymakers here to try and steer investment uh, towards the real sector. We know, for instance, that uh, Ibrahim Patel speaking uh, at an event earlier on today, uh, speaking to fund managers and many in the asset management community, appealed to them to try and, uh, I guess, div- diversify the asset allocation more towards uh, uh, real sectors that are labor-intensive, uh, tourism, construction, manufacturing, and many others. Uh, but uh, really, what, what uh, carrots and sticks do we have at our disposal to ensure that that happens? Sure. Um, so they're very limited, obviously. The, the typical ones that the government usually does is to provide some tax breaks, right? The idea is that if you're employing young people from a specific age band, we will then allow you to claim uh, half or, or, or claim half of the uh, salary that you provide as a tax break. Um, and so this is the typical approach that we have, but I think there's not enough fiscal space currently uh, to have a program that will be big enough to make an, a significant dent in terms of the unemployment or reduce unemployment uh, through this type of policy. And so the other alternative is to then penalize types of investment. And the idea is that if 
people are making suboptimal returns in the financial sector. Suboptimal meaning you might have a specific benchmark, whether that be the current rate of return in the real economy, such as uh, somewhere in between 5 and 15%, and say that financial assets that earn a return below or within that bench, below that benchmark will then be taxed so that, so that you can incentivize people to reallocate their capital towards the real sector, obviously uh, realizing higher returns, but mm. also evading your tax. Yeah. And then lastly, the ANC is currently looking at a, a system of allocative assets whereby uh, you know asset managers are by legislation required to allocate a specific portion of their assets towards certain parts of the economy, certain mm. sectors. Like prescribed assets, Infrastructure, yeah? etc. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, and let me bring you in here. And uh, before I guess you, you respond to some of the uh, suggestions that CIA is making there, uh, also about the efficacy of existing uh, interventions. Uh, I mean, a big part of what you were saying earlier on uh, about uh, the labor market we wish for versus the one that we've been dealt often has to do with this uh, perceived inflexibility of our labor market. And I was interested to find out uh, in some studies that have come out of uh, some of our universities here that. Even that notion of flexibility or inflexibility takes on regional dynamics. So uh, if you take a look, for instance, the Eastern Cape, where uh, I come from, uh, much higher unemployment that you'd see there than what you would see, for instance, maybe in KZN or even in Gauteng. And that then influences the level of flexibility and even wage determination in that space. And, of course, even the involvement of uh, organized labor. So uh, I guess are we are we uh, over emphasizing this particular point of uh, inflexibility of our labor market on the supply side uh, rather than, I guess, uh, talking about investment on the demand side? Look, there are lots of issues on the table here. Um, Firstly, the only people who are allowed to be flexible employers and who don't have to obey the minimum wage are the government. They're in the public works program. They're paying people a very, very low basic wage. Um, for not very great jobs at all, very little Are you talking about the public works programs? Yeah, the public works program. And so the government, through both that and the ETI, seems to have recognized that the price of labor actually affects how many people get jobs. And we would just be saying, let's expand that to the private sector as well, so that they should be allowed to do this as well. The second point is, I think the, you know, we can't have a collective bargaining system where you can expand an agreement to people who are not sitting at the table. So I'm obviously in favor of co- collective bargaining and people's right to organize and trade unions. But the big problem in South Africa is that the big companies, the big unions, agree on a deal of wages and standards, and then they say this must apply to everybody, all the small firms in the sector. And that is a big disincentive for the growth of small firms. And, you know, South Africa has been talking about small firms for ages. They're actually declining in quite rapid numbers. If we're serious about tourism, and if the minister is serious about tourism, and this could be a labor-intensive sector in many respects, not totally, we should go for that. But then we must fix the visa system. And we must exclude small businesses from a number of regulations. Such as? So... I think there's, you know, we can go round and round. Sorry, Anne. So you're saying let's exclude small businesses from regulations. You've already mentioned, I guess, some of the wage regulations. But what are the other regulations that you'd want to exempt them from? I'd exempt them from affirmative action regulations. Why? Because, 
lots of small businesses are family-owned firms. Mm. And they want to work with the people they know and trust. Who, I are, who are white. So let me just say, let me say this, because we, we don't have a lot of time. Okay. I agree with Ricardo Hausman, who says South Africa spends far too much time attacking the firms that we have and constraining the firms that we have, pretending we can tell them what to do and not to do, okay. and we spend far too little so time Anne, on Anne? how we expand the number of firms we need. Okay, and I want us to come back to the point you were making, that uh, affirmative action would be the one, or even be or no, transformation. Not the one. You no, 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 I mean one of many, right? One of many. Uh, minimum one wage. One of many okay. things that I would change. But I, I, think w- but I would like us to talk about back. that one in particular. Is that okay? I'd like us to talk about that one in particular. Um, I mean, what kind of incentive would that create that, uh, you know, people can, just by virtue of the size of their entity, I guess, shirk whatever responsibilities they have collectively as a society uh, to transform uh, the country? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to understand no, what, but um, come back to yeah, what disincentive BE creates or affirmative action creates in the growth of small business. Let's come back to the key issues. South Africa is an open economy to the world. So when people talk about what we must tell capital to do this or do that, you forget that capital can disinvest. And that's one of the things that's happening in South Africa. So the government, by its actions, has encouraged capital movement that's out of the country and diversification. That's a very important thing to remember. The second thing is, I think, The most important lever this country has for changing millions of black people's lives is to get fast growth and to fix our education system, which nobody seems to want to talk about anymore. Um, And I'm in favor of driving redress and transformation in those mechanisms through growth, labor-intensive growth. I think that's going to be much more effective then the government telling people you have to hire this number of people, you have to do this, you have to do that. I'm not opposed to all aspects of affirmative action or employment equity, but this has mainly been for an elite, the insiders of South Africa. I'm interested in the millions of people who are outside our economy. And there, this endless conversation about um, firms and and affirmative action doesn't help them at all. In fact, it disadvantages them because it prevents us creating more firms. Okay, see, so yeah, let me bring you in here uh, just on uh, some of the uh, exemptions potentially that uh, Anne thinks would be job uh, generating here. Well, what's your view on that? Sure. Look, I think firstly, I, I disagree wholeheartedly with the notion that further liberalization. Uh, would lead to further job creation. I think this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the role that unemployment serves in the market and in the balance of power in the economy. Uh, Higher unemployment serves the interest of capital. It uh, reduces the reservation wage of labor, meaning people are willing to work for much lower wages Mm. when there is higher unemployment. And I think what we're facing as a country, in my view, is uh, firstly as a result of a highly over economy. Mm. Uh, if you look at the rest of the continent, 
despite coming from a lower base, etc., the growth rates are much better than what we have in South Africa. And in my view, that's precisely because they've got quite significant informal uh, sectors mm. which are able to then generate income for everybody. So outside of just the notion Why of the employment... Anne, uh, Anne, uh, I think Sia gave you a chance to talk, so uh, I'll give you an opportunity as well to respond. Yeah, but it should be so, a conversation. Yeah, it should be, but uh, a facilitated one, right? All right, so yep. the point I'm going to make with the informal sector thing is you actually uh, are reducing barriers to entry for small and even informal players, um, except uh, in South Africa, we think with the conventional wisdom of economics, which is to say, let's aim for jobs and let's aim for formalization of businesses and, you know, uh, financial inclusion, etc. I think we should be thinking against the conventional wisdom. Uh, if you look at countries like Nigeria, for example, half of the GDP is from the informal sector. And you say whatever you might about your perceptions of the economy, uh, the, the, the Nigerian economy is one point uh, three trillion dollars strong. That's about four times as much as three times as much as uh, the South African economy currently. And I think precisely because of the informal sector that spurs on economic activity. And also, uh, you know, their institutions are self-reinforcing in terms of policy. The Central Bank of Nigeria has got a Department of uh, Development Finance that offers concessional funding directly to entrepreneurs. Um, at about 6 or 9%, which is much lower than the market rate you're currently facing. I think if we're serious about employment as a country, uh, we need to uh, be engaging in the discussions that are taking place now around the mandates of the Reserve Bank, around the reinforcing of policy, not just looking at liberalizing uh, or tinkering or making it easier for people by reducing legislation. I definitely think that um, that's not really going to be serving us. And it has shown in terms of our trading sector, which has completely failed as a result of uh, the, the sort of wide mass liberalization and re- re- you know, removal of, uh, of legislation and reforms. Okay, and. Look, I think there are some things on which we agree, but there are a lot of things on which we disagree. Let me start by saying the informal sector doesn't apply any rules at all, or very few of them. That's what defines it as informal. So this would allow employers to employ people without even basic health and safety regulations, which I would favor. So I'm not opposed to the informal sector. I'm referring to. I'm not opposed to the informal sector. I mean, that's a specific conception of informal sector. Uh, you can and have an informal sector that complies with regulations. Sorry, that see ya, see <laughs> And please continue. So I'm not opposed to the informal sector, and this is clearly a way in which people can find, you know, survival living and various other things, but I don't see this as the, the ideal route for South Africa to go. Um, I I would like more for people and for the economy. I think we can grow the economy much more by encouraging formal businesses um, without, you know, know, I'm sure we could debate what what we mean by formal. I don't want too much, but we want basic health and safety, and we need people to, firms to pay their taxes. Um, But it seems to me that you have to, recognize the dire straits South Africa's in and that we have many examples from other countries 
which have had very poor populations mm. and low economies and that have managed to get out of this. And they have done this through expanding employment and a whole lot of other things. Yeah, but Anne, can I, can I just come in there just on, on uh, the reading of the international experience and, and allow you to, to conclude your point? I think one of the things that I'm not hearing in the conversation, which I'd, I'd be interested to hear both of your perspectives as you continue there, Anne, is, is the importance of a social wage there. So a lot of people would be willing to take a much lower wage um, in the early stages of a development cycle if indeed they know that they're going to get free education, they're going to get uh, roads built, they're going to get... Uh, the kind of hospitalization, all of the things that drive what they would spend the wages on anyway. If those things are covered, then uh, you can compete on a low-wage perspective competitively. Look, I'm absolutely in favor of public money being spent on education, but I would like good education, not the appalling education that the vast majority of people get at the moment. I'm in favor of people having access to health care. I'm in favor of the grant. I wouldn't be boasting about how many people we have on the grants. I would like to boast about how many people we're enabling to get off grants and become self-sufficient, sort of self-standing members of our society. Um, but I'm in favor of that part of redistribution. Call it whatever you want. I would like, we need an effective state, which we don't have, but we have a very expensive state, I want an effective state that deals with public transport, absolutely vital for an urbanizing society, and to enable poorer people to get access to labor markets. So that's not an issue. I think that's vital. We don't have that. We're wasting a lot of money. But I I agree with you. If you had um, more effective value for money in, in, let's call it the social sphere, that would be very helpful for poorer people. But in the meanwhile, we're we're losing jobs. We're not creating jobs. And I don't think this is a time to reinvent economic theory. I think we have to look at Asia, at Mauritius, Mm. at places like Ethiopia that are starting to attract foreign investment into factories. And that is one of the poorest countries in the world. And I think South Africa could be doing a lot more to to attract investment. But I go back to what I said at the beginning. We are in deep, deep trouble, and we can't continue the way we are. And I think we need to take some bold choices that will open up our country and make it a competitive place in which people want to invest. Okay. So, yeah, let me give you the last word. Uh, Certainly some of your perspectives. And your response to the social wage question I was asking. Sure. Mm. Look, I think the social wage is exactly that. I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. And that's one of the big obstacles that are blocking even our attractiveness to even foreign direct investment. Um, even if you look at the way in which the wage structure is, is built in South Africa, people need to earn specific levels in order to take their children to private school, in, in order to get uh, you know adequate education or private health care, in order to get adequate health care. And, you know, by resolving this issue of the social wage, we would, uh, you know, create a whole lot of more opportunity for the market to operate. Uh, you know, the price sensitivity in the labor market 
I think is exaggerated, uh, but this is in the way in which the capital is responding. And so we can't really do anything about that. And what we can do is reduce or lower the social wage. Uh, and this isn't something that requires foreign direct investment. This is something that, you know, a government and clearly cut public programs can be effective in implementing, uh, you know, through public works, etc. You know, creating a specific base uh, for all South Africans and uh, creating a specific livelihood for all South Africans isn't something that you need to attract foreign investment and, you know, pay dividends to, et cetera, maintain an exchange rate and policy certainty, et cetera. This is something that can be entirely domestically driven. And I think notion of development isn't necessarily something that we need to be focusing on trying to attract foreign direct investment or factories into South Africa. You know, a lot of countries that people are telling us to learn from have done this purely by domestic investment and trying to redirect capital into uh, the real economy or where it has higher returns within the economy. And I don't think that it's necessarily something that we need to try and find foreign direct investment. In fact, uh, we need to think against the conventional wisdom when it comes to foreign direct investments, mainly because the way in which we've attracted foreign direct investments in South Africa have taken away our competitiveness, diluted it through mergers and acquisition, Mm. uh, rather than generating productivity in South Africa uh, concertedly. We need to have a much more concerted redirection of public finances towards uh, lowering the social wage and, you know, and improving uh, the conditions generally of public services throughout South Africa. We'll have to leave it there. Anne Bernstein, Executive Director at Center for Development and Enterprise, thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us this evening. And uh, Siatuma Pineza, Economist and Director at Political Economy Southern Africa. And uh, if uh, there's anything one uh, can take uh, from uh, these deliberations is that uh, we certainly don't agree on what some of these solutions are. And uh, there's not, no unanimity, uh, no unanimity when it comes, uh, I guess, to uh, the study of economics in particular and the study of labor markets when it comes to what ought to happen in a context like ours and uh, with the kind of history and uh, present that we have here. And Maki Aswade on Twitter, of course, becoming spicy as well in that regard, saying, I enjoy these segments where economists just come on and fight and be shady.